Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner of ACG Analytics. I'd like to welcome everyone to the weekly macro call. As we've been saying from the beginning of the year, even before COVID, it would be a macro year, at first based on the election cycle here in the U.S. But today we're going to touch upon such issues as a future COVID response bill, House passed the famous HEROES Act. How will the Senate respond? Where are we on the latest debt plan out of the EU? What is the resistance both in the U.S. and in Europe? due to the fact that we're in a reopening mode with U.S. unemployment surprisingly low last week at 13%. And finally, we'll touch upon how the world perceives the U.S. struggles with civil unrest. A lot to talk about. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Serwinski, our lead international analyst. Chris. Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, as always, to the panel that you mentioned, including John East, our director of research, Bart Osterveld, senior advisor to ACG, previously with the Atlantic Council and Moody's, Well, starting in D.C., you referenced the good jobs numbers. You know, that's good for the U.S. economy. Obviously, it's good that businesses are up up and operating again. A lot of that has to do with previous iterations of coronavirus relief legislation that, that the Congress has passed. But, you know, the impact of these positive numbers on future bills is somewhat confusing. John, what do you think this means for the prospects for a fourth bill? David referenced the HEROES Act passed out of the House comes with a $3 trillion price tag. It covers a lot of ground, but ultimately it does contain a lot of Democratic wish lists that are unlikely to make it into whatever the Senate pushes. Do the jobs numbers delay a new bill and kind of give credence to Republicans' desire to wait and see how the economy is doing before they actually push forward new targeted aid? Yes, the jobs numbers are affecting how quickly Republicans in the Senate are willing to respond. They will respond, but I thought we were going to respond, at least have the nucleus of the response in June. We still have the majority of June left, but it looks like we're not going to have a bill until maybe even late July. Part of the other reason for the delay, despite Republicans always wanting to move slow after spending so many trillions of dollars, is that we already passed some fixes to the PPP program that made the funds easier for small businesses to access because that was a real problem. And so Republicans are still debating amongst themselves how they want to respond. Republicans are also trying to put liability protections for businesses in a bill. That is a difficult negotiation with many Democrats, not insurmountable. There were some liability protections for makers of protective medical gear in the CARES Act, and there are some moderate Democrats who also support it, but crafting those difficult. This was already on a slow timeline, but the jobs numbers make it a slower timeline. The positive economic story, though, outside of anything related to a new relief bill and additional money being pumped into the U.S. economy, the good numbers themselves also impact the presidential election. We thought before the coronavirus that this year was going to be one of debating U.S. economic growth with respect to the presidential election, and President Trump was going to run on the strong economy against the Democratic nominee, who 
now as Vice President Biden. Over the last couple of weeks, we've obviously seen social issues dominate the media here in the United States. Systemic racism is now the big discussion. And, you know, what is the United States going to do to address that? For President Trump, it's a difficult narrative. Vice President Biden right now is debating how exactly he wants to move forward with this. You've talked, John, in length about who he chooses as a vice presidential candidate will greatly impact the future of this race. Do you continue to expect that this social discourse will be the central campaign narrative going towards November? Or do you think that other things are going to overtake it, considering that we're still five months out? I believe two things. I don't believe there's one central campaign narrative. There are going to be people who are basing their vote on the economy. There are going to be people who are, if we have another coronavirus outbreak, who are going to be basing it on health. There are people who are going to bring social issues to the forefront. If former Vice President Biden, who I'm going to call the Democratic nominee-elect, chooses an African-American woman for the vice presidential slot, and there are two good contenders, the mayor of Atlanta and Congresswoman Val Deming, who's the former chief of police of Orlando, Florida, a swing state, that might help bring back the Obama coalition, and that would change the dynamics of the race. But I do think that the questions of racial injustice will deepen, right? We, we've had a gut reaction to a very, very disturbing, heartbreaking video, but the issues are more complex complex when you get into law enforcement and law and order and what it means when you live in an underserved community and your only grocery store burns down and about what policing means to communities, how you police. These are big questions and they're complicated questions. And so if we continue debating them, the discussion becomes more complex. But you've got to remember, there are very few persuadable voters. And so we're really focusing on a narrow slice of the electorate. Most people coming into this, either we're going to go out and vote for Trump or they were going to go out and vote for the Democratic nominee. And so we have a lot of issues that are competing in the minds of a very small subset of voters that will tilt this election. The Senate is hugely important going into November. Before, it seemed like the scales were a little bit tipped towards Republicans holding it and therefore splitting Congress and then your guess as to who wins the presidential election. But with some of these new narratives, the coronavirus, the economy not as strong as it was, do you think that now we're tilting towards a Democratic sweep? There's a very high likelihood, and certainly if the election were held today, then tomorrow we would have Democrats controlling both houses of Congress and the presidency. But we've seen the narrative change rapidly in three months. We've basically been through four ordinary times be the entire election cycle. We've been through like four presidential election cycles in three months. And so we have four and a half months to go. I expect more crazy to happen. I, I do have one last question before we move out of D.C. into uh, the rest of the world. I was out on Memorial Day in Washington, D.C., and I saw just thousands of people out and about. It seemed like there wasn't that much social distancing. The warm weather makes people want to get out. We've seen over the last couple of days an increase in hospitalizations, new cases in several states across the United States. If this continues to get bad, do you think that many states are going to end up closing down again? Or would you see the federal government step in in terms of some directives? Or do you think this is going to continue to be a state-led directive and that we're kind of past the phase for closing again? Under our Constitution, these are state issues. The federal government can help prod and they can help bribe and they can issue directives and guidance. But this is really a state issue. But there are two things going on. One is, I think even many Democratic governors who've been slow
slow to reopen, realized that maybe everything they did didn't make sense in hindsight. People were acting out of incomplete information. So that, that's not to disparage their actions, but there have been some questionable directives in multiple parts of the country. I don't think that we would see the same reaction again. We did not have any hospitals overwhelmed outside of the New York metro area. And two, the ability for governors and in some cases mayors to shut things down has really been undercut by the images of people protesting, rightly or wrongly, but weeks before saying that people would be arrested if they had an outdoor church service or you know wanted to get their hair cut. And so I don't think the populace is quite as governable as it was previously. Okay, thanks, John. So summing some of that up, we've got like three issues there that are going to be central to the campaign narrative going into to November. You know, normally we we spend a lot of time on China in these calls. And, you know, I just want to touch on a couple points here before I bring it over to Bart. In the note this week, talking about the phase one deal over the last week or so, Lighthizer and, and the president himself have spoken positively about the deal. And, you know, it's our view and it continues to be our view that the phase one deal is intact for now and that there's no reason for the United States because it will ultimately, if the deal falls apart, it, it will be the United States that pulls out. It will not be the Chinese for the time being is, is little desire on the U.S. side to withdraw. We have seen some progress on the structural reforms side of things, whether it be, you know, an intellectual property rights framework for reform. Lighthizer himself spoke about this last week, saying that you have seen progress there. And at the same time, we obviously acknowledge that the purchases lag behind. The thing with the Chinese, and this is something that David has talked about at length before, is that with these purchases, it's going to continue to be a slow drip, just enough to make the administration happy that they see, you know, oh, there goes another 200,000 tons of soybeans this week, not too little where they're going to say that, oh, wow, it's being picked up in the news and it's just incredibly obvious that they're not buying anything. The numbers are down, but there are some reasons for that with the coronavirus going on, for example. But something that I think is an interesting point and hasn't really been talked about is that some of the authority for the purchasing has shifted from commerce to the agriculture ministry in, in China. And I can tell you that Lighthizer and others in the administration, high-level officials have certainly seen that and noticed that they still have high-level contacts and conversations with Chinese officials. For example, they negotiated with Liu He out of commerce, who's close to Xi, as we know. And then now he's handed it over to agriculture, which is considered to be more bureaucratic in nature as opposed to, and technocratic, I, I should say, um, as opposed to the more political commerce ministry. So some of this is positive in my view. It means that, that the purchases are being formalized and put into the machinery of the Chinese institutions as opposed to coming from a more political, you know, directive nature. One last point that I think is interesting to keep watching. We still have not seen the Treasury currency report. It was expected. It was due, I should say, by April 15th. We haven't seen that yet. We continue to monitor for it. We had heard that it was expected this week. Outside of China, Bart, I wanted to shift over to Europe. We've seen high-level meetings this week with the finance ministers. Have we seen any progress with the next generation EU relief package, the 750 billion euro package that all the details still need to be ironed out, no? Yeah, that's a very accurate summary. They are meeting this week. The statements so far have been summaries of things that had already been agreed and measures that had already been taken. So the unemployment insurance project, the measures by the ECB, the lines available out of the ESM for up to 2% of GDP for healthcare and pandemic-related expenses, which the Eurogroup again encouraged member states to take advantage of. The 750 billion euro commission proposals for the next generation EU that you mentioned, there remain a bunch of sticking points. So it's not just the balance of loans and grants 
Hampton, though that's important. I think there's a path to a compromise there. They'll probably tinker with the balance of loans and grants a little, and everybody can go home and claim victory. More importantly, the discussion is about the division of the funds. The commission had floated a proposal about how these funds were to be distributed that was based on pre-pandemic economic indicators, including unemployment. That proposal is there needs to be an improvement on that calculation mechanism, because as it stands, countries that were heavily affected by the pandemic, like Belgium, are minor recipients, and countries that were barely affected by the pandemic, like Poland, are major recipients. So it has its complexities. You will want a division key that, in the end, gives enough to the Eastern European member states as well. But if this is a truly pandemic response and pandemic stimulus response, there needs to be some tie to the impact of the pandemic more than there is currently. So this is where my understanding is that diplomats are stuck. The next date to keep in mind is the 19th, when the heads of state and government meet. They have been very careful to tamper expectations for that meeting as well. That meeting is going to have to mostly focus on Brexit and the post-Brexit EU-UK trade relationship. Those discussions are also stuck. So I'm not expecting much at that meeting either. What the silver lining here is that they want this up and running in early 2021. So there is some time left. But given that all the parliaments need to approve whatever deal is eventually struck, it would behoove them to have at least an outline of the deal that can be taken to the parliaments late summer, early fall. Is it going to take, you know, the market really beginning to um, lose patience in order for them to actually move here? That's definitely a risk that they're exposing themselves to. You know, the you know, the ECB is right now providing the backstop to give policymakers time to flesh this out. If there's much worse than economic news, for example, out of Italy or out of Spain in the next few months, you know, that tourism is only very slowly restarting. That's a distinct possibility that renewed pressure on yields uh, would compress the timelines. Yeah, that is a very much a risk they're exposed to. Was it yesterday? or earlier this week that other ECB officials started talking about the need for more stimulus. Do you think that that factors into the conversation at all, too? Obviously, this is one package, but, you know, there's other things that can be done in the meantime as well. Yeah, they continue to bang that drum, and I think that that's fairly well coordinated with the commission just to keep pressure on. Recognition also because the the ECB has, you know, that unresolved issue with the German court that this is out of balance. Fiscal efforts need to match more of what the ECB is doing. The ECB can throw out lifelines for a while but at some point, the, the fiscal side of things will need to balance. Thanks, Bart. And David touched on this point, and I want to get your view on this because I think it feeds really well into the heat map that you continue to update. Obviously, we saw the dollar you know, come off its highs for several days in a row, obviously with some risk on sentiment. How has that impacted some of these countries that have been incredibly hit by the virus? We've seen many of their currencies appreciate against the dollar in the meantime. Yeah, to the point that about a fifth of the countries in, in our set of 75 countries have made up for all their losses for the year. So they're, they're either neutral or up against the dollar relative to the position that they were in at the beginning of the year. These are smaller, mostly frontier economies, so Bolivia, countries that are the Western Africa Currency Union, used to CFA franc, so that, that's six or seven countries. But most other countries, their currency continues to improve against the dollar as well. There are some outliers in the negative, which includes Brazil and Mexico that are continuing to make gain, but are not yet where they were at the beginning of the year. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.